This is an overview lesson on umbilical hernias. So we're going to talk about what they are, what causes them. We're also going to talk about the signs and symptoms of an umbilical hernia, how they're diagnosed, and how they're treated. So an umbilical hernia is a ventral abdominal hernia located at or near the umbilicus, which is the belly button. So if we look in this image here, this is your abdomen, and your umbilicus, again, is your belly button, and a hernia is going to be a bulge from a weakened abdominal fascia or a weakened abdominal wall that is going to protrude out near the umbilicus. We're going to talk about a bit more in detail where this occurs in a little bit. And here's another image showing where other hernia can occur. Again, the umbilical hernia can occur near the umbilicus and some of these other hernias, we're going to talk about them in other lessons. So this leads to abdominal contents protruding out through the abdominal wall. So you may see something like this. Although a lot of times um, umbilical hernia are going to be smaller than this. They're going to be a small defect or a protrusion around the umbilicus. Now they occur anywhere from 3 centimeters above to 3 centimeters below the umbilicus. So if they're in this area, if they're in this range, they are known as an umbilical hernia. And the majority of cases are acquired upwards of 90% of cases are acquired, and some of them are congenital where someone is born with them, but majority of the time they're going to be acquired. The epidemiology of umbilical hernia is as follows. They occur in 2% of patients, and umbilical hernias are actually the second most common type of hernia in adults. And females outnumber males with this condition around 3 to 1. So 3 females to every 1 male with this condition. We're going to talk about why that is in the next slide. So that leads us into causes of umbilical hernia. What causes an umbilical hernia? Well, first we have to talk about why they occur specifically. Hernia develop at points of weakness in the abdominal wall. So that is very key. Now, there's a couple of sites to note. One is at the site where the umbilical vein exited the abdomen. So during development, when a baby was in utero, they have an umbilical cord that comes from their belly button. And there is one vein that comes out that connects to the placenta. Where that umbilical vein exited the abdomen, this is a location where there may be a weakness or there may be an increased risk for a weakness occurring in this area. And there may be a case where there is weakened fascia around the umbilicus. This is known as weakened richets or umbilical fascia. So the sheath and tissue around the umbilical area. Now, the reason why there may be a weakness that develops is often caused by increased intra-abdominal pressure. So increased intra-abdominal pressure can lead to weakness or distortion occurring in the abdominal wall in these areas we just mentioned. And this leads us into the risk factors. What might be causing that increased intra-abdominal pressure? One of them is a premature birth. This is more due to the development in around the umbilical area. Pregnancy is also another risk factor for getting umbilical hernia. So because during pregnancy there's increased intra-abdominal pressure, there can be some hernia that develop around the umbilicus. This is why women outnumber men with this condition. Obesity is another risk factor, so having a very large abdomen. So you can imagine that if there's a very large abdomen, that abdomen is stretching out, it may lead to a distortion or a tearing in parts of the abdominal wall that may lead to an umbilical hernia. Ascites is also another risk factor for getting an umbilical hernia. This is when there is a buildup of peritoneal fluid within the abdomen 
and your abdomen becomes stretched out. And you can imagine that if there's so much fluid in there and your belly stretches out, you can imagine that there can be little tears or weaknesses in the abdominal wall from that. We often see ascites occurring in cirrhosis, although it can occur in other conditions as well. And it's so common in cirrhosis patients that up to 20% of cirrhotic patients will develop umbilical hernia at some point. We can also see umbilical hernia being caused by other causes of increased intra-abdominal pressure. These include chronic cough, so having conditions like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD or asthma, which leads to a chronic cough and continually applying pressure in the intra-abdominal space. This can lead to weakness in the abdominal wall causing an umbilical hernia to form. And then physical straining is also another risk factor. So heavy lifting, chronic constipation, anything that's applying a lot of pressure to that abdominal area. So anything that's increasing intra-abdominal pressure, again, can lead to weakness in the abdominal wall causing an umbilical hernia to form. Now let's talk about the clinical features of umbilical hernia. There are asymptomatic hernia, which means that these are hernia that don't really cause problems. So with asymptomatic hernia, we may see a bulge or a swelling or a mass at the site. So, so you may see something quite large like this around the belly button, or you may see a very small distortion around the belly button. So it can be small or large in size. And what will be noted is that the size will increase with increased intra-abdominal pressure. So when standing, when coughing, it may lead to this bulge popping out a bit more. And with asymptomatic hernia, with hernia that don't have an issue, they can often be pushed back in. So some abdominal contents can sort of pop out, especially if there's increased intra-abdominal pressure. If there's heavy lifting, they may pop out, but they can be pushed back in. They can be reduced. There may be some sensation of aching around the hernia that radiates through the herniated area, but that's about it for asymptomatic hernia. Now, the next type of hernia that an asymptomatic hernia can develop into is an incarcerated hernia. So an incarcerated hernia is when the mass increases in size, so it can become quite large, and oftentimes the hernia becomes more painful. And what's key with an incarcerated hernia is that it is difficult to reduce or manipulate. So it becomes so large, it becomes difficult to push back in. So it pops out, and then some of the tissue can squeeze on the hernia, preventing or making it more difficult for someone to push the hernia back into the abdomen or push the abdominal contents back into the abdominal cavity. So this is what we call an incarcerated hernia. And it can become so bad that it may progress to a bowel obstruction. So you can imagine that if there's part of your small intestine popping out and the surrounding tissue starts to squeeze on that area, you may find that bowel contents are not able to travel through that area. So it can actually cause a bowel obstruction. And if that surrounding tissue squeezes so tightly on this area, this can lead to a strangulated hernia. We're going to talk about that in the next slide. So with an incarcerated hernia, we can see mass increasing. So if the hernia increases in size, it becomes more painful, difficult to reduce or manipulate. And then there may also be signs and symptoms of a bowel obstruction. Signs and symptoms of a bowel obstruction include constipation or reduced frequency of bowel movements. There may be less passing of gas. There may be some more abdominal pain. There may be some nausea and vomiting and other symptoms as well. If you want more information on signs and symptoms of bowel obstruction, please check out my lesson on that topic. And all of this leads into a strangulated hernia. So if that 
surrounding tissue starts to squeeze so tightly on that protruding abdominal content. So if you have your intestines popping out and you have the surrounding tissue starting to squeeze on that so tightly, it can actually compromise the blood supply to that part of the bowel that's popping out. So this is a very serious condition. It has similar symptoms to an incarcerated hernia, but with additional symptoms. Oftentimes the patient becomes very unstable because essentially their bowel is dying. This part that's sticking out and the blood supply is cut off from it, that part of the bowel is dying. So this is a very serious condition. Patients often unstable. There's sudden severe pain. There's oftentimes a fever. And then the hernia, even seeing it on the outside, may change in color to a red or black in color. And then oftentimes bowel obstruction signs and symptoms are present. So Again, strangulated hernia is when the blood supply gets compromised to the area and the bowel starts to die. And this is very serious and this is a surgical emergency. Now, how do clinicians diagnose and treat umbilical hernia? So the diagnosis of an umbilical hernia is often a clinical diagnosis. Seeing the hernia, seeing that distortion or that protrusion or bulge in the area we mentioned before, three centimeters above or three centimeters below the umbilicus is a clinical diagnosis, especially if the patient has other risk factors for getting umbilical hernia. And some imaging modalities may be performed as well, although most of the time it's a clinical diagnosis. Some blood work can be performed if there is bowel death. We may see an increased LDH, but oftentimes blood work is not necessary either. This is again a clinical diagnosis. Now, how do clinicians treat umbilical hernia? First is hernia reduction. So in the case of asymptomatic or incarcerated hernia, there is attempts to actually reduce the hernia. It's important to note that this should only be performed one to two times. If it doesn't go in, this may need surgery or surgical intervention. If there is signs that this is a strangulated hernia, do not reduce the hernia. A hernia support belt is also important. So this can help reduce some of those symptoms that a patient may be experiencing. So once the hernia has been reduced, a patient can wear a belt like this that can help hold the hernia and hold the abdominal contents inside. In children who do have umbilical hernia, their hernia may close spontaneously on their own. So oftentimes no treatment is necessary if a child is less than five years of age to see if it actually spontaneously closes on its own. And then for definitive treatment, surgery is performed. So what happens is mesh is placed. So if there is an umbilical hernia, surgeons will open up and put a mesh there to ensure that the abdominal contents do not keep protruding out. So the mesh holds abdominal contents in. And oftentimes surgery may be classified as the following. Elective surgery if it is asymptomatic hernia, urgent if it's a symptomatic hernia, and emergent if it is a strangulated hernia. So these are different levels of urgency or severity. So in the case of a hernia that is causing really no problems, patients can be put on a list for surgery, but it's not necessary right at the moment. So they can oftentimes do these other methods we talked about before, reduction and support belt and avoiding risk factors that increase the likelihood of an umbilical hernia. If it's symptomatic, if it starts to cause problems, this can lead to some urgency in getting a patient to surgery to correct it. And then if it is a strangulated hernia, this is an emergency. This is a surgical emergency because that part of the bowel is starting to die because blood supply to it has been cut off. So again, a surgical emergency for a strangulated hernia. So if you want to learn about gastroenterology conditions, please check out my playlist on gastroenterology. And if you haven't already, please like and subscribe for more lessons like this one. Thanks so much for watching and I hope to see you next time.